Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. It is April 23rd, 2018. I am here with Josh Bergstrom at Bergstrom Winery. Uh, And Josh, we'll start by asking you, why wine? (laughs) Why wine? Um, Serendipity, I think, is really the answer. Um, You know, I was... I I actually, as a young man, um, wanted to be a brewer. Um, So obviously, uh, Oregon, uh, especially Portland now, of course, Bend and Eugene are very well known for the brewery scene as well. And when I was in my uh, early 20s, late teens, um, I wanted to be a brewer. Um, my first couple beers were undrinkable. Uh, and I think that was probably what uh, got me interested in wine. It was really more my mom and dad who got me interested in wine. Uh, you know, the Bergstrom wine story really starts with them. Um, my father is a Swedish immigrant, so he, uh, he grew up in a northern... Uh, Swedish logging town, probably population 50, definitely not more than 100 back then. And he, um, he, was, uh, he was a logger essentially at the age of 12. Um, it was uh, that kind of an agricultural community. They had their own animals, made clothing from their, their animals, uh, uh, had sustenance from their animals, had to hunt and fish and grow potatoes. Um, he grew up in a communal household with several family members, cross-country skied to school and work, and essentially was told uh, that he would not be able to receive any education past the fifth grade. Uh, you know, in, in that time and in that place, um, you, you went to the, a minimum amount of school, and then you, you worked. Uh, and my, my father, I think, was passionate about educating himself. He read a lot. Um, read a lot of Western authors, you know, things like James Fenimore Cooper, mm-hmm. Last of the Mohicans type things. And, um, and it just so happened that serendipity got involved and um, he had an aunt and uncle who lived in Portland, Oregon, and they offered uh, to sponsor him to come to the United States. And so uh, at the age of 17, he got on a boat by himself and went through Ellis Island and uh, New York City and then flew to Portland, Oregon. And, you know, kind of one of those great American dream stories. You know, he uh, showed up to Cleveland High School day one, didn't speak English, you know, graduated student body president, that type of stuff. And so he, he educated himself uh, locally. He went to Willamette University, uh, then went to OHSU, which was the University of Oregon Medical School, and, and then met, met my mom, whose family had also come to Oregon through serendipity. Um, they were a, a large Irish family who lived in Southern California, and, and I think uh, her dad and mom came up to Oregon on a camping trip and just said, "This we need to live here. <laughs> and so somehow they, they met in medical school and fell in love, got married, and essentially ran their own private practice in OBGYN for their entire career. So he was a physician, she was the nurse. And we grew up in Northwest Portland, and we grew up, um, you know, they raised us during the... 70s and 80s and early 90s when, you know, I believe a lot of us saw this cultural renaissance that was starting. You know, Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower down at Chez Panisse in Berkeley had brought these European concepts to the West Coast and that kind of started spreading like wildfire. And Portland went from being kind of a Betty Crocker cookbook, big box frozen grocery store town to having organic food markets, farmers markets, brewers, 
uh, winemakers, uh, local breads. Um, that, that European concept came to Portland, and I think you know my mom and dad witnessed that, saw that. And I think that at some point in my, my dad's life, he said, I want to get back to an agricultural community. So in 1996, they moved out to Dundee um, and bought a piece of land, which is now the Bergstrom Vineyard. At the time, it was an old abandoned field that had had hazelnuts, it had had walnuts, it had had prunes. Um, and I was at the University of Oregon studying business, and my father just called me one day and he said, you know, your mom and I want to plant a vineyard. Would you be interested in, in joining us? I didn't, I didn't know anything about wine. Uh, I, I, I remember hanging up the phone and going to a local wine store, and I bought a bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir, a corkscrew, and a wine glass, because <laughs> I, I didn't own any of those things. And I tasted wine for the very first time, you know, because my dad wasn't a big collector or connoisseur. We rarely saw wine on the table growing up. Um, and it was exciting. And I called them back and said, I'm, I'm interested. And, and we started this family adventure, really, of educating ourselves, going down to the University of California Davis on weekends, taking extension classes in viticulture and enology, going to the Oregon State University extension classes on weekends, learning how to prune and graft. And, and we, we learned everything from the ground up. And as a, as a junior in college, I got my first internship at Rex Hill. I, I, uh, Lynn Penarash was the winemaker there <laughs> at the time. It was still owned by Paul Hart. And um, I took fall semester off, and I did my first harvest in 1997. Um, and then I met the Ponzi's and worked for them in 1998. Um, and then I graduated from the University of Oregon with two harvests under my belt, and I moved to Burgundy, France. And so that's where I did my postgraduate studies in viticulture and enology. Um, met my wife, who was at the famous uh, Lycée Viticole in Beaune. So she's from Bone and was studying viticulture and enology and wine and spirits marketing. And we fell in love, moved back, and started Bergstrom Wines. It really all just happened. It, you know, why wine? I don't know. I really don't know why wine, but um, that was 22 years ago. So I'm, I'm 43 now, and I've been making wine for 22 years. It's more than half my life, and I don't understand how it all happened, but um, couldn't be happier <laughs> that we're here doing what we're doing. So... Was there a moment in there when you, you, you mentioned going and buying a bottle of wine and a yeah. kind of corkscrew, was there a moment when you felt the, like kind of the passion for making wine or for being part of the industry? My, the first harvest, uh, working for Lynn Penarash, um, was a revelation. Um, I, I ordered almost every book uh, on enology and viticulture and winemaking that the UC Davis bookstore could sell me. I, I read them voraciously. I, I wanted to educate myself. Um, and Lynn and her, um, her enologist at the time and her cellar master um, gave me that opportunity. They, they really, they, I think they maybe saw that I wanted to learn and they answered all of my questions and let me taste with them and let me rack every barrel in the cellar and, and taste uh, those wines. And that, that first, you know, I think I worked there for about five or six months, because um, I worked all summer and then through the harvest, um, that, that was the moment. That was the real moment that I, I felt that excitement. Um, on the, and in the meantime, my mom and dad were researching clones and rootstock and coming up with, um, you know, laying out blocks in the vineyard. And so it was all very exciting. I was working in a winery and I knew that we were, we were going to start that same process ourselves. Um, but 1997 uh, was a very challenging harvest, and it was my first harvest. 
Um, and I think harvest is a very special moment. It's, it's hard, of, of course, to, to explain to people who've never done a harvest, but working in close quarters with a small group of people for that many hours and that many days um, not only creates a bond between those people, but um, you know, that's, that's the moment. That you're, that's when you're making wine, and it was so exciting to see that for the first time and be a part of it. That, so 1997 was really the matchstick um, that kind of lit the fire. So when you go to Burgundy, so tell us a little bit how kind of that influenced your, the future of your winemaking. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the funny thing was is that my father, being an immigrant, wanted his kids to speak a different language. But he didn't want them to speak Swedish because he didn't really see any need for that. Um, and he, he actually looked at the United Nations and said the international languages of business are French and English. And so he put my brother and I in French-American bilingual school uh, from first grade on. Uh, so we, we went to the French-American school, which was at the time a new pilot program uh, in Portland. And all of a sudden we were bilingual and we spoke French, which was weird because my dad didn't speak French, nor did my mom. I didn't speak Swedish. We didn't have any French friends. It was just kind of odd that we knew French. And we, my, my mom kept us in tutoring and then we studied French through high school and college and I minored in French. And it wasn't until I moved to France that it all made sense. Uh, as a junior in college, I lived in Lyon, France. Um, and you know, that is the culinary epicenter of, of France. It's also um, wine-wise, you know, it's, it's the old Roman route where, you know, if you look north from Lyon, you're looking at the Beaujolais and Burgundy, and if you look south, you're looking at the Rhone River and the Rhone Valley. Um, and it's just it's such an epicenter for wine. Mm -hmm. um, and it was when I moved there and, and realized I could speak the language and interact with a culture um, and was exposed to wine in that way that was quite exciting and that that allowed me to move to Burgundy to Bohm in in 1998 um, to study viticulture and enology as a uh, postgraduate student so being bilingual um, opened so many doors for me um, and Burgundy that whole experience living there working there studying there um, marrying a Burgundian um, has shaped my career in, in many ways. Um, Burgundy is the birthplace of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Those are the two varietals that we make. Um, Burgundy is a collection of villages with families who have been farming land for hundreds of years. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, agriculture in Burgundy is, is, is everything. Um, what I saw in Burgundy that I could actually bring back to Oregon and use was this concept that great winemakers are great farmers. Um, there's really no two ways about it. There are no shortcuts in winemaking. It's all about that agricultural year, the, the life cycle of the vine, the seasons. Um, in Burgundy, I learned how important that all is. Um, and that most Burgundian wineries are small family operations. You know, it's usually a, a mom and a dad and maybe a grandpa, um, a couple kids, and that's the labor force. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just to, to meet families and, and make friends with people who are so in touch with the land, um, where wine is everything, it's the epicenter. Um, such that, you know, Burgundian families are still arranging marriages to keep vines in families. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but um, uh, Burgundy is this cultural 
uh, folkloric type place. And, and I wanted to make wine like that. I, I wanted my wines to look, smell, taste Burgundian. Uh, I, I wanted to make Burgundy in Oregon. Uh, you know, I found out pretty quickly you can't do that, and that's okay. Uh, it took me a while to realize that my job is to make Oregonian wines, and that's actually even more special. But having, having grown up tasting Burgundies, um, you know, I didn't, the first wine in front of me ever was an Oregon Pinot Noir. Um, but then I was, I was exposed to so much red and white Burgundy growing up, not only when I lived there, but then coming home and being friends with winemakers and collectors who exposed me to some of the greatest Burgundies in the world. Um, my palate was kind of formed tasting those wines. Um, I didn't grow up drinking California wine and I, I didn't really even grow up drinking that much Oregon wine. Um, it was just a lot of Burgundy. And so, and I, I think that's probably true of a lot of us. Um, you know, red Burgundy is, is um, reference standard. It's, it's, there's a lot of respect and reverence for the old world and that's how we learned was by tasting those wines. And then of course the, the main purpose is to have that epiphany and say, but what, what, what do I want to be when I grow up? What, are, what do I, my wines taste like? And, and they need to be Oregonian. They need to be Willamette Valley Pinot Noir and Willamette Valley Chardonnay. So it's okay to be um, inspired by Burgundy and it's okay that our, my palate was shaped by Burgundy, but, um, but, I, but that's not my mission in life. My mission is to make Oregon wines. So, um, but it definitely influenced um, everything I did in the early years, for sure. What are the differences between sort of a Burgundian winemaking style and an Oregonian winemaking style? The styles are actually quite similar. Um, you know, we, we all um, strive to farm a certain way, have low concentrated yields for, for we're, again, we're not farming grapes, we're farming wine. Um, hand harvesting, um, you know, we all ferment in open top fermenters and punch the, the caps down by foot or by hand and we, we age our wine in, in oak barrels. And so stylistically, Burgundy and Oregon, how we approach technique is quite similar. And that's when you really truly realize that uh, climate, microclimate, soil, what the French would call terroir, exists. Um, Burgundy tastes like Burgundy because it's made in Burgundy. In Oregon wines, depending on which appellation you're in, taste unique because that's where it's grown. So um, stylistically, Burgundies are going to lack uh, the generosity of fruit. Um, they tend to be more acidic. Um, it, Burgundy has changed a lot too. I would say that your stereotypical Burgundy is very earthy, a lot more earth influence, less fruited, more acidic, there's more austerity, takes more time to come around. Oregon, because of our abundant sunshine but lack of heat, um, especially after the summer solstice, we see more sunlight hours than, than Burgundy would. So our wines tend to be more generous, uh, more fruit forward, um, and have this great balance between this succulent acidity and texture. Our wines are quite textural in Oregon. I think that's, um, that's a bonus. And so our, our wines, I think, are gonna be more generous, more fruited, um, more approachable. But again, that's a stereotype. In blind tastings, Oregon wines routinely are confused for burgundies. Um, and that's always nice when that happens. It's not our goal. Um, but our wines in Oregon and in the Willamette Valley in particular 
are at the same level, if not higher, than many burgundies as far as quality goes. But stylistically and, and, and um, regarding technique, I would say we're, we're quite similar to what our friends in Burgundy are doing. But you have a little bit more freedom when it comes to trying different things and making yes. experimentation and things Ab like that. Absolutely. Burgundy is repressed, <laughs> if you will, um, by government laws that are qualitative in their origin. Um, but many winemakers' hands are tied as far as creating new techniques, whether it's agricultural or in the winery. In, in Oregon, we do have the freedom to, um, for example, uh, if I wanted to plant a new varietal on that slope over there, I could. Whereas in Burgundy, if they petitioned to plant more Burgundy, they're not allowed to, and nor would they be able to plant any other varietal uh, than Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Aligoté, or Gamay. Those are the four um, approved. Of course, there is a little Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc scattered through Burgundy. But um, if someone wanted to plant Syrah um, on the Côte d'Or, it would not be allowed. Um, they would lose their appellation, wouldn't be able to call it that. In Oregon, we can plant what we want, where we want. Uh, we can approach it as we want. There is no established harvest date. We can harvest when, when and how we want. Um, of course, there are regulations on um, additions to wine, uh, you know, regarding sugar or acid or water. Um, you know, you, you can't just do anything you want. Um, and, and I think that the interesting thing is that Oregon winemakers aren't greedy um, and aren't criminal either. We're all very qualitatively oriented, meaning that we want to make the greatest wine because for 50 years we've been trying to get the world's attention. So to do so, we've had to work together to raise quality. And because of that, you don't see in the Willamette Valley people blending in this varietal for color or doing this or that shady operation because that's not in our best interest. Our best interest is just to make the best wine we can. So you mentioned Lynn Pinner Ash as kind of your initial uh, sort of mentor. Uh, who, who else were you learning from in the early days as you were trying to get a kind of a hold on all of this stuff? Everybody. That's the great thing about the Willamette Valley wine community is um, and, and the more we say this, you know, I think the more people understand and believe us, but it sounds rather cliche or cheesy. Um, it, it is a true community and, and everyone here does help each other, even, that, even today. Um, so Lynn Penarash was my first boss. The Ponzi's were my next boss. Uh, Dick Ponzi and Louisa were great resources to me. Uh, Louisa's husband, Eric Homaker, was my third boss. Um, all three of those people, um, Lynn Penarash, Louisa Ponzi, Eric Homaker, in my mind, were master blenders. They had wonderful palates and knew how to put wines together. I learned a lot from them. I also learned a lot from people like Mike Etzel and Ken Wright, who were single vineyard type people, um, and, and Mike Etzel, a great farmer. Um, but people like David Adelsheim and, and Harry Peterson Edry and uh, Dick Erath, you know, and again, Dick Ponzi, the pioneering guys were still there uh, for us and giving us all sorts of um, lessons and, and advice. I, I got to work with David Lett for three vintages, um, buying Chardonnay from the Irie Vineyard. Um, tasting David Lett's wines back to the beginning and working with him was a, an aha moment. I mean, his wines are brilliant and maybe they were misunderstood when young, but aged just as gracefully as a Grand Cru White Burgundy. Um, he had so much, uh, so much 
education and experience, um, those were three invaluable years working with him. Um, but I mean, everyone has been there for me. And I'd like to think that, you know, the next generation will have us to also pass down that oral tradition and, and technique and, and history of winemaking. And, um, but yeah, I mean, Lynn was a great first boss. And then from there, um, just meeting new people and networking and, and, and that really just opened the door and this community as a, as a whole has just been very supportive. So let's go back a little bit from the from the moment that your your dad calls and says, "Hey, do you want to be part of this business we're doing?" Yeah. How do we get from that to where we are today? Yeah. So, well, uh, when we got back from Burgundy, obviously when he when my dad called me and my, he said, "You know, your mom and I would like to start a business. Would you uh, be interested in in joining us?" Um, there was a lot of hard work and education that started at that point. Sure. Um, reading learning, working on the job, going to Burgundy, coming back. Um, in the early days, my younger brother, uh, Anders, and my wife, uh, Caroline, and I, we were the labor force. Um, so did all the tractor work, uh, hand hoed our vineyards. Um, we planted our vineyards, put in the posts and wires and, you know, uh, trellising. And so we were the original hand labor. Um, and I was also in charge of finding fruit for, to make our first few vintages, finding locations. So when we came back from Burgundy, my father had worked with a local vineyard and had contracted um, three tons of fruit. And that was going to be our first vintage in 1999. 1999 was one of the scariest vintages we had had at that time when I got back from Burgundy because it was a late year. We hadn't seen a lot of sunshine or heat. Um, we were looking at a potential October harvest, which is always worrisome in the Willamette Valley uh, because the, you know, as the jet stream sags and starts bringing storms in, the rain is quite likely. So I got back um, and even experienced winemakers were worried about 1999. Um, I had contracted to work for Eric Homaker. He had just designed and built the new Lemelson winery and the Lemelsons, uh, Eric and Jenny, were so kind and they let us, uh, they allowed us to make our first vintage there. Um, but when we got back and I went and visited this vineyard, um, the canopy management was sloppy, uh, the leaves had not been pulled, crop had not been dropped, uh, there was a little mildew here and there. And I asked them if, if they would do these things for me, fix up the canopy, remove some leaves, drop some crop. And they said, no. And I said, well, can I go into the vineyard and do it? Just show me where my rows are and, and I'll take care of it. And they said, well, actually, we were just gonna sell you three tons of fruit from whatever was left over from everyone else's contracts. <laughs> and, you know, reluctantly, I, I canceled the contract. And I told my mom and dad, you know, we've been working at this point for, for three and a half years to get ready to make our first wine and we were gonna walk away from it. Um, because that we, we weren't working that hard to, to, to buy leftover fruit and make a mediocre wine. Um, I mean, everyone wants to make world-class wine. You never hear a winemaker say, you know, we started our winery to make B-minus wines. I mean, everyone wants to make great wines here. And that just wasn't gonna do. And so we had to say no to the 1999 vintage and walk away. And it was at that time that um, I talked with uh, Sam Tannehill, who, who's a, a, an old friend. Um, 
but at the time he was working at Archery Summit for Gary Andrews. Um, and Sam said, you know, Gary might have some fruit available. And I called Gary Andrews and talked to him. And, you know, he was like, oh, you're a good kid. I like you. I'll give you a quarter ton of fruit. And I was like, thanks, Gary. And, you know, you can't make wine with a quarter ton of fruit. And, but I was so thankful that I essentially just kept calling him on a daily basis and lobbying. And, and every week or so, he'd say, oh, you know, you're a good kid. I like you. I'm going to give you another quarter ton of fruit. And I got my way up to about three tons of fruit. Um, and our first vintage was back on. We were at the Lemelson Winery making our very first vintage from the Arcus Vineyard, from Red Hills Estate, from, you know, these great Archery Summit uh, vineyards that Gary was kind enough to sell me fruit. And that, that got us started. Um, and when you're a 21-year-old kid, you know, making Arcus Vineyard Pinot Noir, um, you start meeting people and people start getting interested. And we didn't have a name, but we were making wine from vineyards that had great reputation. And that really helped us. You know, Gary and Sam selling us fruit in those first years um, really helped us on our way. Um, and it was about that time, um, because I had, I had called everyone in the Oregon wine growers phone book asking to buy fruit. And you know, most people would say no, politely. Most people never returned my call. Um, it took me three years to track down Dick Shea. Um, but, you know, so it was hard to get fruit, and Gary had provided us this little foundation of three tons of fruit. And it was at that time that I finally met somebody um, who was farming um, a little one-acre vineyard out towards Silverton. And he said, you know, we'll sell you some fruit. And I, it, was just, it was just this little vineyard. And I was like, oh, at least we got some fruit, you know. And they're nice people, and um, we had, I think, a couple tons of fruit from there. And he, he said, you know, I'm the vineyard manager at Highland Vineyard. And I said, really? And he said, you know, Domain Druin is giving up their 10-acre block there that they've had for over a decade. These were vines planted in 1971. He said, do you want it? And I said, absolutely, we'll take all 10. And starting in the year 2000, the Highland Vineyard became the foundation of everything we did. Uh, we had 10 acres of, of fruit there. Jack Trenhale was the um, managing partner at the time. Um, and we took over these 10 acres that Domain Druin had contracted while they were waiting for their estates to come online. And um, we started going in there ourselves and pulling leaves and positioning shoots and dropping crop. And Jack Trenhill said, you know, good luck kid, because you know, this vineyard we, has never gotten above 21 and a half bricks. Uh, it's, it's just a colder site. There's lots of wind, thicker skins, higher elevation. I don't know what you're doing all this work for. <laughs> and that very first year we got Highland uh, Vineyard up to 24 bricks, uh, which at the time, uh, you know, nowadays I don't really care about bricks levels, but it, I kind of took it on as a personal challenge of, I'm gonna work with this vineyard and it's gonna be great. And we made a fantastic wine from that vineyard that year. And people started paying attention to it and people started calling Jack and wanting to get into the Highland Vineyard. Um, and we just had a great relationship and, a, and great old vines, old Quarry clone and Pomard clone in Badensville. And, um, and that and the early archery summit fruit, you know, the Highland and the Arcus and Red Hills and that kind of, um, that really helped make our reputation and get, and get us going. So in the early days, we purchased all of our fruit. Um, 
and we made wine in borrowed locations. So our first vintage was made at Lemelson in 1999, and in 2000, we moved all of our equipment down to Flynn Winery, which is now called Firesteed, but back then it was the Flynn family. And they, they rented us a little warehouse. And we, we, we took our press down there, our destemmer, our sorting table, all of our barrels, all of our fermenters, and we made wine um, at Flynn in 2000. And then in 2001, we moved up on Calkins Lane. My sister and her husband um, had purchased a piece of land uh, from a, an old farmer here. Um, and that's where we located the winery in 2001. So uh, 2001, we were finally in our own location. Um, we were only making about 1,000 cases of wine a year. Uh, and from there, we were planting estates. Estates were starting to mature. And we went from purchasing fruit to a swing towards more estate concept. In the 22 years that I've been making wine here in the Willamette Valley, I've made wine off of 90 different vineyards. Uh, so we've worked with every appellation, every clonal rootstock combination. Um, and that was a fantastic couple of decades, uh, getting to know a lot of different sites, um, knowing that we were looking for the best lands to plant uh, to have a state acreage on. So, so going from our very first harvest of purchased fruit making 10 barrels of wine to now, now we farm 85 acres of a state farm, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. We've been biodynamic for 18 years, um, and we are the largest client um, at only two vineyards. Uh, Shea Vineyard, where we uh, contract 16 acres of the 140-acre vineyard, and then Temperance Hill in the Olamide Hills, where we have uh, 10 acres with Die Crisp down there um, out of the 100. Um, so we work with Temperance Hill and Shea, and then we have five estate vineyards on four different appellations. So we have the Bergstrom Vineyard in the Dundee Hills. We have the Winery Block and Celis up here in the Chehalem uh, Mountains. We have Le Pré du Col, which is on the Ribbon Ridge, and then Gregory Ranch, which is up in uh, Yamhill Carlton. So we farm those as a farming team. Um, they're all what the French would call monopoles. They're all monopolies of Bergstrom. We don't sell fruit, and uh, they all come here. And, um, and that's where we are now. Um, it, I can't believe it's been 22 years. It, got, it went really fast. Um, but we are today what we set out to be, which was a family-owned and operated winery, uh, farming biodynamically and, and an estate concept, um, in that our, our goal in the future is to be 100% estate. So our goal is to find another piece of land somewhere special and plant that uh, in the next five years. So how, many, how many cases are you making now? Um, so in 2017, we made about 15,000 cases of wine. Um, it was a bigger vintage in 17. Our, our normal production would be more like 12,000 cases of wine. Um, so we make about 10% of that is Chardonnay and the rest is Pinot Noir. We also have another label that's called Gargantua, which is a West Coast Syrah project. So I make a Syrah from Washington State, one from Oregon, and one from California. That's a really small label. We only make about 450 cases a year of that. Um, primary production is Pinot Noir, of course. Um, and we do our five estate vineyards and then the two uh, purchased uh, sites. Um, and so I, I would say in the future, um, I would like to be about 10,000 cases of production. I think that I still enjoy walking all of our vineyard rows, tasting all of our barrels. Um, and, and I'm quite selfish that way in that I, I want to make the amount of wine that still allows me to be winemaker. Uh, and I would say about 10,000 cases in Oregon is that kind of size where uh, you can do that. 
So let's talk about your Syrah since you brought it up. Yeah. Um, what, what prompted that idea and what has been the, kind of the, your reaction or response to that project? I love Syrah. A lot of Pinot Noir producers do. There's a real kinship between those two varietals, um, whether it's DNA or not. <laughs> um, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I lived in Lyon, France for a year. And, um, you know, Lyon is one of those special towns in Europe where um, because of its proximity to the Rhone and Beaujolais and Burgundy, um, it's quite normal and acceptable to have Syrah, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir all on the same table. Uh, you go to Burgundy, you, you, people drink Burgundy. You know, you go to Bordeaux, people drink Bordeaux. Um, and in Lyon, they drink everything because they're surrounded, they have this abundance of wealth of viticultural zones. Uh, and that's where I fell in love with Syrah for the first time. Syrah has everything that Pinot Noir doesn't, and vice versa. You know, Pinot Noir is known for elegance, charm, floral, delicacy, ethereal. Um, Syrah is monstrous, brooding, <laughs> wild, animal, sauvage. It has, it has aromas of what the French would call garrigue, which is, you know, when the wind blows in the south of France, you smell the rosemary and the thyme and the underbrush, the sage, and that transfers into the wine. Syrah can taste like olive tapenade, um, <laughs> smell like tar, uh, very herbal, very meaty, very peppery. And so I think that they complement each other. Um, and I, I knew I always wanted to make Syrah, but Bergstrom is a Burgundian varietal winery. Um, so I knew that when we did make Syrah, it couldn't have the Bergstrom crest on it. It would have to be something else, something different. And my wife came up with the idea of, of calling it Gargantua, which is, um, it's, we named it after uh, a Francois Rabelais book. So Francois Rabelais wrote uh, a very famous book called Gargantua et Pantagruel, which were about two hedonistic giants who went around France doing very naughty things. And it was a lot of kind of social and political uh, commentary. Um, a lot, a lot of obscenity and, you know, and I, I just kind of felt like everyone has an inner Gargantua <laughs> and mine has always been my love of Syrah. And so we decided to name it that. Gargantua denotes something big, um, but our Syrahs are really trying to aim at more finesse and restraint. So it's a play on words. Well, the Gargantua label uh, is all in lowercase to try to minimize this concept of, you know, grossness or <laughs> enormity. Sure. Uh, and the, and the, the label is a, a drawing or a painting of a man whose shadow is the beast. And that was really fun because I got to contact my childhood friend, Nat Mead, who is now an artist living in Brooklyn, and I commissioned him to paint three originals, um, who, who, a man whose shadow is in the beast in three different color pa palettes. And the color palettes are representative of the states that we pull them from. So the, the Washington Gargantua Syrah is purples and pinks and rose and, and blues because this wine is very, it's very fruited and, and cool flavors. And the Oregon is very peppery and it's much more of like a coat roti um, minded wine where it's, it's, it's peppery, it's savory. It's, um, and so the, that, that label is green and, and yellow and blue. And then the California uh, Syrah comes from the Bien Nacido vineyard down in Santa Maria. And that's more of like a Cornas mindset. It's, it's, there's almost no fruit in the wine. It's all olive tapenade and meat and savory herb. It's fantastic. Uh, and so that label is orange and red and you know, 
brown and burnt sienna and things like that. And so what we do is we, we sell this wine in a mixed six pack. So it's two of each and we force people to taste all three states and start a discussion because one of the reasons I got into making Syrah was um, I loved it. I loved American Syrah too. And every time I talked to a great winemaker uh, from California or Washington or Oregon who made Syrah, I'd say, your Syrah is so delicious. And they'd say, yeah, try selling it. <laughs> and I, I just didn't understand that. I was, what do you mean? And although Syrah is like the fourth most planted varietal in the world, nobody wants to buy it. It has a bad image. It has an image problem in America, and that's mostly because, you know, industrially produced Syrah is oaky, sweet, blueberry syrup, has no personality. So most Americans that taste Syrah, they don't like it. Um, it's not until you taste a Northern Rhone Syrah, like a Cote Roti or a Saint-Joseph or an Hermitage, that you say, wow, this is really special. And there are people in America, especially on the West Coast, who are making wines like that. Uh, really special terroir-driven Syrahs. And I just found it um, alarming <laughs> that American consumers didn't know about that. And I, so I wanted to join the pack. I wanted to be one of those people championing Syrah. Um, because I, I like a challenge, and, uh, and it has been, but it's been received very well. Um, we're releasing our third vintage of it uh, a month from now, this June, and it's been received very, very well by our clientele, uh, and so I'm happy about that, and I'm happy to be one of those people championing that varietal. You mentioned earlier uh, your, your biodynamic vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, how did you develop sort of a vineyard philosophy, and, and how does that part of it? Um, I'll be really honest with you, I came to biodynamics in a very selfish way. Um, when I was in Burgundy and my father and mother had charged me with this job of getting to learn everything I could to someday run their business, you know, they had, they had cashed out most of their retirement to plant this first vineyard and, and then tapped me to say, you'll run it. Um, I wanted to make the best wines I could. I wanted to make the best wines in America. And when I was in Burgundy and I met people who owned wineries that were biodynamic, there was something special about them. The wines were better. You know, the wines from Domaine Lefleve or Pierre Moret, who was the registrar there at the time, um, were just, they were better. And I thought, well, if being biodynamic makes my wine just even one or 2% better, then I'm gonna do it. So I didn't come into biodynamics as an ecological warrior wanting to save the planet. I wanted to make better wine. But as soon as I came back to Oregon and started farming, um, we had a, a gentleman, a, a local vineyard manager who had helped my parents plant the first eight acres of the Bergstrom Vineyard. So when I got home, the first eight acres had already been planted. Um, and he recommended an herbicide uh, because the grass was getting too high and we couldn't keep up with it with a hand hoe. So my father said yes, and I said yes. I, I didn't really know much about that. And he sprayed that herbicide, killed the grass, but also um, bud break had just happened and all of the leaves crisped. And we thought we had killed our first vineyard. I mean, we thought, oh my God, what have we done? We sprayed this to get rid of the grass and now we've just lost eight acres of vines. And the vines grew out of it, but we swore at that moment that we would never use herbicide again. And that's when biodynamic farming, essentially eschewing all use of synthesized herbicides, pesticides, insecticides, systemic fungicides, um, 
NPK fertilizers, that we just, we knew right then and there that we were not going to use any of those things. Um, and as we farmed more, it became more and more important. Um, in our vineyards, you hear things, you hear birds, and you hear birds because there are worms, there are insects, there are animals, there's life in the vineyard. And, and organic and biodynamic vineyards are noisy and they're active and you can see all of this biodiversity. When you walk into a chemically farmed vineyard, it's silent. There's no life. You know, there aren't any birds because there aren't any insects, there aren't any worms. Um, it's actually quite shocking, it's eerie. Um, and I realized that we're making wine for our family and friends and clients to drink and grape being you know, wine is a maceration product. There's only one ingredient, it's grapes. So just like coffee or tea, if it's farmed chemically, it's going to end up in the beverage. You know, grapes will harbor uh, residual chemicals and thus it'll be in the fermentation and thus it'll be in the wine. And if we're truly trying to make a, a purity product, something that speaks of place, then I don't think those chemicals have any place in being there. And so, so although I started off with biodynamics very selfishly, thinking just more about qualitative things. Um, it, is, it has become part of our lives and, and, our, and the way we work and the way we farm and, and very important to us. You know, we're not, we're not the poster child for biodynamic. I don't travel the world giving seminars or lectures about it. It's not even on the front page of our website. Um, it really only comes up in conversation when people ask, but we farmed that way for 18 years and are, are very happy to do so. What do you, how do you see your role as a winemaker, or, or what is your winemaking philosophy? It's changed a lot. My, my, my winemaking philosophy when I was a kid used to be to grab people's attention. You know, when you're a new brand, you, want, you wanted Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator and at the time Stephen Tanzer and all, all the critics. You wanted them to pay attention to you. Um, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. and. And as a young winemaker, I think you beat your chest a little bit and say, hey, look at me, look at these wines. And, and so the wines were bigger, blousier, ripe, more alcohol, more new oak. Um, my early wines, um, funny, oddly enough, you know, loving Burgundy as much as I did, my earlier wines were the furthest thing from. They were very new world, um, very extracted, concentrated, rich, sexy, opulent, um, fun, fun, wine, fun wines to make. As I get older, I don't drink those wines anymore. Um, so nowadays, I make wines that go with food. Uh, that's, its number, that's its number one purpose. Wine is meant to be enjoyed at the table. Um, and so I've backed off on a lot of things. I'm not trying to say, hey, look at me anymore. Um, I'm really trying to focus in on subtlety, elegance, finesse, if I can get it. Um, but most importantly, I'm trying to focus on the place. If I sit down with a client and show them all of my wines, I know that nobody will love all of them. They might identify with one or the other. But what they tell me time and time again, and this is really what I'm searching for, is that they all taste unique and different. So all of our wines should taste different from each other and they should taste true to the place that they come from. So now I see my job as a winemaker, not so much about um, producing a beverage so much as 
um, explaining a place. Um, recently, some magazine uh, said that to taste at Bergstrom is kind of like, um, you know, opening a door of, or unlocking uh, kind of a geographical roadmap to the Willamette Valley, and that's and that's that's a great compliment because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to show people what places taste like. And so what, what, what that involves is a more minimalist approach than I used to um, utilize. Less new oak, less alcohol, harvesting for acidity, trying to get freshness, vibrancy, um, backing off sometimes. You know, sometimes doing nothing is doing something. Um, I don't believe in the saying, great wine makes itself. I think that vinegar makes itself. We do have a job, which is to stop a process between grape juice and vinegar. So winemakers do have a role and wine does need to be made. However, if you can not do uh, some things correctly, uh, I think the wine is better. So I, I would say that my role is, is more about uh, running an agricultural business, taking care of pieces of land, thinking about the future. It's, it's taken me a long time to realize it, but I, th and I guess I've always known it, having been in Burgundy. Wine is a very long-term uh, effort. And I think that now I know that it may not be in my lifetime that the best wines are made at Bergstrom. And, and that's actually what our purpose is, is to, is to farm vineyards and grow soil and biodiversity and health and balance so that when these vines are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, um, my son or sons or someone else will have all the tools they need um, to make the greatest wine. So I think, I think we're just trying to set up legacy and, and, and try to make some great wines in the process. You mentioned earlier, uh, kind of following up on that, you mentioned earlier the sort of 10,000 cases of sort of your, your goal. What else is in the future for Brookstrom Winery? What else do you hope to accomplish or do you have a new varietal in mind? Or yeah. Like um, the other thing I learned in Burgundy that I can apply here is I'm, I'm quite traditional, maybe old fashioned, in that um, I'm not looking to make um, a bunch of new wines, new varietals, new styles. Um, what I really want to do is hone in on the places of land that we farm and routinely make them better. Um, what I love about great domains in Burgundy is you can go and taste someone's Clos and you remember what it tasted like five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago because they've always made it. That's what I want to do here, is I want people to fall in love with certain places, that we are the only ones who make wine from those places, and that then becomes something reliable they can count on and look forward to every year. I want people to, to, to grow with our vineyards, like the Bergstrom Vineyard or Salise or the Winery Block. I want them to say, I remember the first time I tasted it, I can't wait for the next vintage, and compare them and collect them and, and and create foundation and stability. And just my goal is then to hone in on those places and make them better and better and better um, without distracting people with, oh, I, now I make a pet nat, or now I make an orange wine, or now I, those are all wonderful endeavors. But I, I also feel that um, you can lose your focus. And I also feel that you should really do what you're best at. And I think I'm best at 
um, focusing in on really special places and presenting those year after year. Um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Syrah, I think, are what I'm best at. I'm probably not best at champagne or, or sparkling wine, and I'd rather actually keep that money and buy bottles from people who are best at it. Um, so um, that's what makes me kind of traditional and old-fashioned in a way, is that um, I'm not looking to grow business, expand business. I'm actually looking at honing in business, making it smaller, making it better, and, and again, focusing on that long-term effort. So you, you, you came into the industry right as it was just about to boom. I mean, just in terms of yeah. size, in terms of everything else. So in addition, beyond just pure size, what are the other changes you've seen in your 20 years in the industry? Yeah, obviously size is, um, infrastructure is changing and, and growing. Um, when we came into the industry in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, Oregon was still struggling uh, to sell Pinot Noir. Uh, we were still trying to convince distributors to carry Pinot Noir. We had just had the 95, 96, 97 vintages, which were not known um, as great vintages. They were challenging vintages. So Oregon Pinot Noir still scared bigger investors, certain distributors, restaurants, retail stores, because there was so much vintage variation. Um, so I think in the early days, maybe quality did this in Oregon. And the distance between those peaks and valleys in Oregon has, has been minimized. So I think, that, I think that at the high end, Oregon producers are now routinely, year in and year out, making very high end quality wines. And that we still have vintage variation, but it's not as discouraging or alarming as maybe it used to be. The level of technique professionalism in Oregon since I've been here and watched the industry grow is amazing. Um, we have world-class winemakers uh, making wine now here and obviously that's um, proven in the fact that not only have large California companies come in uh, and invested in land but so have the Burgundians. You know there are somewhere between six and eight well-known Burgundian domains in Oregon now in the Willamette Valley. Um, so what used to scare people, now people are comfortable with. Oregon is not that um, dangerous bet. It's, I think now people see it as more of a, okay, it's, it's established, it's proven itself, um, and now we wanna be a part of it. Um, however, we've grown in size and infrastructure, but still you have to remember that the Willamette Valley you know, wineries got together in the early years and said, hey, if we have something that special, we need to protect it. And so the land use laws in the Willamette Valley are still protecting agricultural land. So you don't see large uh, ho hotels or casinos or uh, even restaurants um, happening here. That's, first of all, it's, it can only happen in the small little towns of Newburgh, Dundee, McMinnville, Carleton. But out in the agricultural zone, if it's agricultural land, it's protected for agriculture. So although there are now over 716 wineries in Oregon, um, it's not as if it's crowded. Um, I, you don't see new big shiny wineries everywhere. Um, it still looks the same. Um, it just feels different. The community is larger, so there's, that's wonderful. Um, if you go to the International Pinot Noir celebration, it's still 
familiar, familiar faces. And um, Oregon still feels like Oregon did when we got here, but it's bigger. It's bigger business. It's more professional. I, I guess you could say there's more competition now, but Oregon has never felt competitive in my mind. I mean, we've never stepped on each other's toes. We all still make enough wine uh, for the world and, and yet still not make enough for the world. So um, Oregon has grown a lot. Willamette Valley wineries have grown a lot, uh, but it still feels real. It, it feels good. What do you think is in the future for Oregon wine? We've always known that if we don't develop on our terms, someday it'll be developed on someone else's terms. Now, bigger business and bigger money will, will come here. And with that comes power. Um, and I think that our land use laws and things like that, our, our communities, some of the, the, the things that we have that are uh, very cooperative, like International Pinot Noir Celebration, the Steamboat Wine Conference, Oregon Pinot Camp, the Salud Auction, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association Barrel Auction for the Trade. These are all cooperative community events. Um, and that will keep um, the, the Oregon face friendly. Um, but people will come in and are coming in who aren't coming in to join that community, they're coming in for business, they're coming in to compete, they're coming in to sell wines at a profitable price point. Um, so the landscape will change. I think we're all aware of that. We're all wary of it, I, 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 maybe even worried. Um, but there's no doubt it's going to change. The, what we have going in our favor is that there's not a lot of plantable land um, in large tracts. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why the Willamette Valley never had a uh, Mondavi or a larger style winery because there are no 300, 400 acre parcels on the hillsides. The hillsides where, where, where we're mostly planting high-end Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, there's just limited, it's finite. So there's five acres here and 10 acres there or 15 acres there, but there's not 200 acres or 300 acres. And that, that will keep the big businesses out because it's just, it's just not big enough for their for their purposes. So uh, we're here in the Shahala Mountains. Uh, what, uh, what's unique about the AVA here or the area here? Go lay down, go lay down. Um, the Shahala Mountains is the biggest of the sub-AVAs. Um, it has three different soil types, both marine sedimentary, volcanic, and the windblown loss on the other side. The, the Shahala Mountains of all of the AVAs will see the most change in the future. I, I predict it's already happening now, but there will be multiple sub-AVAs of this AVA. Much like the Ribbon Ridge to our west is a sub-appellation of the Shahala Mountains, so too will be Laurelwood over on the other side towards Beaverton, uh, and that makes a whole lot of sense because that is a unique uh, different soil zone. Parrot Mountain, which is a volcanic island, will probably be its own AVA. Um, Calkins Lane here, where Bergstrom and Adelsheim are, is a distinct um, bench of sand soils. Um, as you move east, uh, you have what, what was called the Great Rock Slide, and there's, there's volcanic there, and that will probably be its own sub-AVA. So the Shehala Mountains kind of started as a Celebrate Diversity Appalachian, and I predict it will be parceled up into smaller Appalachians in the next decade, for sure. Um, but it is a very unique site. Um, I hope this Appalachian, although it is 
fantastic for Pinot Noir. I hope this appellation sees more Chardonnay planted. I, I think it's a fantastic, these white sands that we have on the Ribbon Ridge and here on Calkins Lane and over even the Laurelwood soils are conducive to fantastic Chardonnay. So I, I hope to see more Chardonnay planted. And we may find in the future, much like Chassin Morachet in Burgundy was all red and now is mostly white, we may find over time, over decades, that one of our AVAs is actually better known for Chardonnay in the future. Um, that would be exciting. <laughs> it's just going to take time and effort. Sure. What, ad what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, we oftentimes ask ourselves if we knew then what we know now, would we have done it? Um, we've been very successful. And I think a lot of that has to do with serendipity and luck. We, we worked really hard. But I've seen other people work really hard and, and not be successful. It's, it's a tough industry. There's a lot of wine in the world. Um, it's agriculture, you know? I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think about wine, they have that romantic notion of, wow, wine, it's, I wanna do that. Mm -hmm. And um, the reality is, is that it's, 12 months out of the year, you know, working in vineyards and working the land and on tractors and, and manual labor. And, and, you know, a bottle of wine takes about a thousand days of life to make, you know, between the, the farming year and the winemaking year and, the, and then going into market. So in, in the wine world, you see a lot of dreamers and eccentrics and iconoclasts. And you rarely see people with a business plan. Which is fine, and it's fun, but the reality is, is that wine has to be sold, and, and that's the toughest part. It, you know, if we could just make wine all the time and not have to worry about selling it, more people would do it. Um, but wine has to be farmed. We have to deal with Mother Nature, work with her. We have to be an agricultural enterprise, um, which costs money. We have to make the wine, which costs money, and then we have to make money by selling it, and uh, that's always the hardest part with consolidation of distribution, um, shipping laws getting harder and harder. Um, it's difficult. Um, it's rewarding. Um, but, you know, as much as I would, as much as I would caution uh, someone wanting to get into the wine industry for all of those elements, um, the reward is, is so much better than all of that. So, I mean, making wine and, and seeing people's enjoyment and, and having your wine in great restaurants, on great tables, with great food, is worth all of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say good luck, um, you know, because it takes a little luck and it takes a, a little patience and some serendipity, but it also, it, it takes a lot of hard work. Um, when we got into the wine industry in the mid-90s, it was perfect timing. I mean, we were part of, I guess, what you'd call the third wave um, of wineries coming in. You know, I, I started making wine about the time that, you know, Jimmy Brooks was making wine, Jim Prosser was making wine. There was, you know, younger guys and gals making wine. And because wine, all of a sudden, was no longer a rich man or rich woman's hobby. It wasn't just a retirement thing. Um, there were now postgraduate programs. Uh, and so sommeliers and wine stewards and winemakers could come right out of college and do it. And that, that was just kind of perfect timing. Um, and the economy was perfect timing. And 
even back then, people were um, pretty forgiving on qualitative mistakes. You know, my first Chardonnay re-fermented in bottle, and, which is a bad thing. It wasn't intentional. And I had this nice gentleman write us a letter and he said, I want to buy every last bottle of your delicious sparkling Oregon wine. <laughs> you know? Nowadays, if we made a bottle that re-fermented, we'd be in trouble. Um, so I think the industry was forgiving, the market was forgiving, everyone was excited about this explosion of Oregon wine, and we just happened to be there at the right time. Um, starting a winery now in, in 2018, uh, I think there's a whole new set of challenges. Uh, the bar has been raised much higher, and so wineries who start now need to hit the ground running with a very high level of quality, um, which is good. You know, competition is the cornerstone of business. We like to see that. Um, you know, big business coming to Oregon may scare people, but it also excites people because we know that the level of quality is going to continue to come up. And that's, and that's always a good thing. So, yeah, I mean, 716 wineries in Oregon right now, there could be 1,500 in 10 years, 20 years, I don't know, it's gonna happen. I, but at some point we'll run out of room, we'll run out of land. And no one wants to see entire forest clear cut to put a vineyard in, it doesn't make much sense. So there will be a ceiling. I just don't know how big that is. So all the questions we have for you, Great. Uh, is there anything else we should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention? I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and yeah. your and great answers. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.